This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Okay, what are we been talking about in the equity markets? We've been talking about this rotation trade, rotating into some of the more cyclical names, maybe even some smaller caps. Let's get a, a sense if that's really a thing. We can do that with Mike Regan, senior editor uh, and lead blogger for Bloomberg Markets Live blog. He joins us on the phone, which from what I'm just going to say, Mike, has now become the new Wall Street Power Alley, and that is New Jersey. You join us on the phone from New Jersey. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about this rotation trade. How does it kind of characterize yeah, Paul, good to hear some respect for New Jersey, finally. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, Paul, and I, I have a piece in uh, Business Week uh, this week with my colleagues, uh, Vildana Heyrich and Claire Ballantyne, uh, about this. And we, we talked to a bunch of different fund managers uh, to just kind of, you know, take their temperature about what they've witnessed over the past month. And it is that rotation. You know, a lot of us tend to look at the stock market through the, the lenses of factors now, you know, whether it be growth and value or the size factors, small caps. So this looks, appears like it was a rotation from growth to value or maybe from mega cap, big name, Apple, Amazon type of stocks into small caps. I think what it obviously is on a sort of sort of more basic uh, level is a rotation away from the stay-at-home uh, beneficiaries to the companies that will benefit if we actually are ever allowed out of our houses uh, <laughs> again. Um, so I think it's an important distinction because that factor rotation, everybody has been sort of thinking that there'd be this rotation from growth to the value factor uh, at some point. People have been predicting it for years. There seems uh, there have been a few times when it looked like it was happening um, but then it kind of fizzled out. Um, so this is, you know, the vaccine and the notion that life might get back to normal in 2021 is, is really the catalyst for this rotation. And it, it very well could lead to that value outperformance, um, even though I'm not I'm not sure you could classify it as sort of the value factor in and of itself coming back into fashion, rather that those beaten down uh, banks, energy and industrial stocks, that were sort of left behind in this rebound. They, they're all sort of heavyweights in that value factor. Um, so as people get more optimistic about the vaccine in 2021, there is a lot of speculation, and, and you know, who knows if, if it'll pan out, but a lot of speculation that finally that time for value to, and maybe small caps to outperform the big mega cap uh, tech names of, of the stock market is at hand and, and will last a while, won't just be a flash in the pan fall. Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go, Mike, because, you know, you think about it, uh, just maybe just say from the end of the financial crisis, 09, 10, you know, the story of the stock market's really been kind of the big cap, the tech, the growth names that have really powered this market. I'm just wondering, typically, you know, looking at it historically on past cycles, how long does a, you know, a, a cyclical rotation trade, how long does that typically play out? Is it something fairly quick? You have to be nimble to get in and nimble to get out, or does it play out over a longer period of time? Yeah, I, I think it depends on sort of what kind of investor and trader you are. There are certainly sort of mini rotations that may only last a week or, or a month. And a lot of times they're just corrected, say uh, one one factor, one sector just 
got way ahead of its skis and the other one was left behind. And then there's kind of a quick mean reversion. But there are these longer-term uh, rotations. And the, the one that I, I talked to uh, Rob Arnott uh, of uh, Research Affiliates, who's you know, very into fundamental indexes, one of the pioneers in that space, and he pointed out this super years-long uh, favoring and outperformance of value after the crash of the dot-com bubble. It was basically from, I think, early 2000 to uh, the middle or late 2006. That value actually was outperforming growth pretty consistently. Um, so that is the kind of big, I think, sea change that a lot of investors want to get in on the ground floor of. Um, it's starting to look to many people like that could be the case this time. Again, there's so many sort of head fakes in, in this type of back and forth between, you know, what characteristics investors are really going to reward um, that it, it's kind of too early to say. Rob Arnott, in our story, says he thinks this is it. It's the start of a multi-year outperformance for value mm. um, because it, the discrepancy just got so large there. And, you know, he, he makes that comparison to the dot-com bubble. I mean, I think, obviously, there's a lot of differences to point out. The, the big mega-cap tech companies in this era are in way better shape. They're not sort of pipe dream type of uh, speculative stocks like we saw in the dot-com era. These are obviously legit cash-rich uh, businesses. But that doesn't mean that they can kind of, you know, don't, won't necessarily take a backseat to the value, to the beaten down plays for a little bit. It might not necessarily mean, you know, Paul, that these big mega cap stocks are in for, for declines or bad performance. Yep. But the thinking is that maybe they won't be the, the stars of the show for a little bit. Interesting, interesting trade. Mike Regan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Mike's got this story out in the Bloomer Business Week magazine. The bull market rotates away from tech-driven mega-companies. You can catch that in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Mike Regan, senior editor and lead blogger for Bloomberg Markets Live. He joined us on the phone from New Jersey. And again, Mike's got that really cool story about that rotation trade. Uh, and some folks think that this can really have legs, and it's a way to play. It's a way to get uh, you know some value for your investment dollar. Uh, so we're starting to see that in the indices as we look at it, really starting in, in, in November. Looking at the shares of Boeing, they are up 7% today on the back of that news that Ryanair, which is an Irish airline, going to buy some of those 737 MAX jets, uh, which have been on the ground for many months now. Julie Johnson, aerospace reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from Chicago. Julie, this seems like a, a big deal, an affirmation, if you will, of Boeing and its 737 MAX. Oh yeah, it's huge for Boeing. Um, they so the Max is um, is officially ungrounded in the U.S. That happened uh, last month, and Boeing's been working to you know to crank up sort of the commercial machine um, that is this this jetliner program. I mean, it's absolutely critical to the company's finances. Um, Sales really sort of dropped away um, after, you know, two fatal crashes last year and this global grounding. And then COVID came in this year and just devastated yeah. the market. And uh, so this is the largest deal for Boeing or Airbus um, since, you know, since the world changed. So, Julie, it's interesting. We had the, the CEOs of both Boeing and Ryanair uh, on Bloomberg Television this morning. They were interviewed by Guy Johnson and... Alex Steele, and boy, the CEO of Ryanair really went out of his way, I thought, to really praise the 737 MAX and say how confident they are in the jet and how it's such a great move forward. Is Boeing going to need more of this type of support from the aviation industry if they really want to get this thing uh, uh, going again? 
Yeah, well, um, absolutely. Um, of course, O'Leary um, has has a vested interest in the Max. I mean, Ryanair is an all seven thirty seven operator, and so um, so you know he needs it's he needs to inspire confidence yep. in the air, airplane as well, obviously. Um, and you know we've seen some other big customers come out and and support Boeing and the plane over the last month or so. I think what's really going to be critical for this this jet to make it back into the marketplace is for when when flights resume and it's going to happen as soon as next week in Brazil. Um, Boeing needs um, desperately to have a quiet few months, like no you know no um, no big splashy. Yep. Um, I don't want to say accidents. Right. But you know no, no mishaps. <laughs> yeah. Yes. What's these, uh, you know, that goes to a good point. Do you expect the airlines, Boeing, both uh, to kind of mount some type of public relations campaign to try to uh, reassure the flying public that this is, in fact, a a safe aircraft? Are they just going to kind of, again, try to let it kind of spread word of mouth maybe? I think every airline is going to do this differently. And at one point last year when, you know, the MAX was just absolutely dominating social media and the headlines – Boeing had this huge um, circus planned. Um, they rented a jet and, and, you know, repainted it in Boeing, Cup, uh, you know, their livery, and they were going to fly that around the world and take, you know, journalists up. And, um, and so a couple of things happened. I mean, the company really was sort of uh, told by the FAA and the airlines to, you know, to, to stand down and, and, uh, and let, other people take the lead around bringing the plane back. And, um, and then, you know, since COVID and the U.S. election, uh, it's, it's just not the headline generator it was. Yep. And why remind people, you know, of the tragedies? All right. So just 30 seconds, Julie, what's the timing here of how, how Boeing believes it will get this aircraft back into the fleet? Um, well, I mean, the... It's all happening in the next week. Uh, the first delivery, I mean, the plane is cleared to fly in the U.S. Okay. Um, American's going to fly it at the end of the month, but we'll see it in Brazil next week. Interesting. All right. That's uh, certainly good news uh, for Boeing. Now the question is, is there going to be uh, demand from the flying public here given the pandemic? Julie Johnson, aerospace reporter for Bloomberg News, uh, joining us on the phone from Chicago. And it's really kind of a big issue uh, for the airlines is as we kind of deal with these terrible pandemic numbers and actually the trend going the wrong way, uh, it's very difficult to convince, obviously, uh, consumers to get back on airplanes and travel. In fact, uh, many parts of the world, it's being uh, really uh, curtailed. Uh, so that's uh, more headwinds, if you will, for the airlines and for the, uh, the manufacturers like Boeing. When you talk to technology investors, technology analysts, the, probably the the one big fear in the back of all their minds is regulation. Uh, this industry is getting so big, so powerful, it has to attract regulatory risk. It certainly already has uh, in Europe and some other markets, but not in the U.S., and there's concern that that may be changing. Our next guest has a great story on this. Shelly Banjo, New York Bureau Chief, Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from Brooklyn. And Shelly, you've got a Bloomberg Business Week story here entitled, Going After Big Tech is One Thing Global Leaders Agree On. What did you find in your reporting? 
Yeah, so I don't know uh, about you, but I was a little overwhelmed with all of the just news about antitrust and around the world. And one thing that kind of kept weighing on my mind was, you know, this thing is this thing is a global trend. You know, like China, uh, the U.S. don't agree on anything. The EU, you know, there's 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 very little that the rest of the world agrees on. And one thing that they do seem to agree on is that tech companies are just too big, too powerful, and too profitable and that it's time to do something about it. So, Shelley, again, I'm, I'm old enough to remember back in some the early days of regulatory risk as it relates to t- technology, specifically Microsoft. And this is 20, 25 years ago, and, and the European uh, Union really came down on them pretty hard in terms of their operating system and their software. Um, but again, the U.S. regulatory uh, environment apparatus, including you know government and Congress, did not generally. They took, a, again, a very light touch. And so is there concern here within in Silicon Valley that the, in the United States, the regulatory risk may be becoming a significant risk? Yeah, I mean, you can make the argument that because of everything that went after Microsoft, you did kind of pave way for some of these big companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter that, you know, didn't exist um, uh, 20 years ago to kind of um, come come out um, and into their own. And now the argument is, well, can they, can, are, can new companies actually take on these big mega tech companies um, or has it become so concentrated that if you're not one of the top four, um, you know, companies that, that you really can't. So, so I think, you know, it's, it's also no surprise that a, a lot of this is ramping up during the pandemic. You know, it really, really did shine a spotlight on how important these tech companies are, how much we rely on these tech companies. Um, and you see, you know, you kind of juxtapose that with the um, uh, fifth of the U.S. small businesses closing down during the pandemic. And I think it really says to lawmakers, you know, are you going to do something about this? What can lawmakers really do? What are folks that are really proposing, I guess, a heavier regulatory touch on technology and on Silicon Valley. What do they propose that seems reasonable? Yeah, you know, I think that a lot of people look at what's happened in Europe and said, you know, these folks um, have been, lawmakers in Europe have been focusing on the tech companies for years and they don't seem to be making a dent besides, um, you know, levying fines on these companies that have so much money that it doesn't really bother them. And so, um, you know, I think it is fair to be skeptical of how much government can really rein these companies in. Um, I think the the things to watch are a, um, you know, it's it's likely that Joe Biden, uh, uh, President-elect Joe Biden, is going to continue this uh, Justice Department suit against Google. I don't think that's going to go away, and it's going to really drag on for some time. Um, and B is this uh, really large landmark report. Um, that uh, Representative David Cicilline, um came out with um, that he's now preparing legislation on um, to kind of give um, the U.S. antitrust authorities new powers, um, you know, give them a little bit more um, heft in what they can do to go after um, to go after some of these companies. And Shelley, I guess, you know, some folks have even proposed, I guess this might be going out on the, the spectrum a little bit, but actually breaking up some of these large tech companies, is that realistically on the table, do you believe? 
I think everything is on the table at this point, but I do definitely think that it's a spectrum, and that's probably at the far end of the spectrum. Um, I think what would be more likely to happen is that you kind of start to pass legislation that makes it harder to keep these companies together, and so then the companies then decide, you know, maybe we should just spin something off, or maybe we should sell it. Maybe it's not worth it to be in this business anymore. So, Shelley, I guess, you know, listening to the folks on the other side of the debate here, uh, the folks in Silicon Valley, they say the reason that Silicon Valley is what it is and the reason that the U.S. is the technology leader in the world is because of a relatively light regulatory touch. Is that still finding an audience on Capitol Hill? Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's certainly the case um, that they are going to listen to these tech companies um, and they don't want innovation to go away. They want the U.S. to be, you know, the leader in technology, especially when you have a country like China coming up and really um, challenging that. Um, so I think that will, you know, that, that will still matter. But there's a reason why all these companies are peppering in all these um you know, uh, programs for small businesses. Every single earnings call now, the CEOs talk about, oh, this is what we're doing for small business. This is what we're doing for small business because, um, you know, they want to show or at least attempt to show that, you know, we're, we're not going to eat up all these other small businesses. I mean, you think about, um, you know, Walmart way back when and how they were causing all these, um, you know, all these sure. people were upset about uh, retailers closing down because of Walmart. And, you know, the same thing is kind of happening now as technology kind of, um, you know, expands tentacles into everything from banking to nursing to, you know, you name it. So, Shelley, about 30 seconds here. What are the next steps that we should be looking for uh, either from the companies themselves or from Washington in terms of maybe some legislation or just some uh, rulemakings? Yeah, I think all eyes now turn to the Justice Department and the attorneys general around the around the country who are waging these um, these lawsuits. First, it's Google. You know, um, there is there is talk about other companies like Facebook and others. You're seeing um, companies like Apple start to take action around their app store. Um, you know, I think you'll see action from these companies to try to get ahead of the problem. But then you're, you're also going to see a, a Joe Biden presidency. And that um, will be interesting to watch, you know, who he puts in charge for those kinds of antitrust issues and, um, you know, how much support he gives to the Justice Department to go after these companies. Well, it'll be fascinating to follow, uh, certainly for investors and for consumers, uh, given uh, you know how proliferate uh, all these uh, technologies are in our life. Shelly Banjo, New York Bureau Chief, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Brooklyn. And again, technology investors—they've really, since uh, you know, really from the get-go, you know, over many cycles, have really benefited from um, you know the lack of U.S. regulatory uh, oversight in terms of a big, a big way. So you can read Shelly's story; it's featured in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Available Available on newsstands and at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Paul Sweeney sitting in for Carol Masser. Well, I guess if we were to step back and, and think about where we are with this pandemic, on the one hand, we have just brutal, brutal metrics uh, in terms of new uh, cases and new hospitalizations certainly going the wrong way. Uh, but on the other hand, we have a lot of good news on the vaccine front uh, with at least three uh, vaccines now uh, very close to coming to the market. So let's get a kind of lay of the land. We can do that with Rupali LeMay, Associate Director for Behavioral Research for the Institute for Vaccine Safety at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, joining us on the phone from Falls Church 
uh, Virginia. And I must note that Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and this radio operation. Uh, Rupali, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, Give us a sense of kind of where you think we are really with these vaccines and how the the dis- distribution of these vaccines, I guess on a global scale, really, uh, in the coming six months might look like. Thanks so much for having me. I think we have gotten some really great news in the last couple of weeks after, I think, months and months of maybe not so great news. And so we're really excited that there will be at least several candidates on the market very soon. With regards to here in the United States, we will likely have access to the mRNA vaccines. Um, Globally, I think that will be a little bit of a different story. And that's because cold chain requirements are quite quite rigorous and will be much harder to transport vaccines in some lower middle income countries. So it's interesting here. So in the U.S., um, presumably over the next, uh, really beginning this this month for some areas, and then obviously in the first half of next year, kind of rolling it out. Um, one of the concerns, and I'm not sure this is a global issue or more specific to the U.S., is a lot of folks in the U.S. you know do not take vaccines, uh, are not supportive of vaccines, believe that uh, not only are they not helpful, but they might cause other problems. How are we going to deal with that in, in this country, do you believe? It's a great question, and it's something that many of us have been working on. We have been very hopeful, um, you know, since the pandemic really started here in the United States in March, that we would have a vaccine product that was available. The key now is to ensure that people will will take the product with the idea that vaccines don't save lives, but vaccination saves lives. So we have been really preparing and trying to identify barriers that people might have that would lead them to perhaps not have confidence in the vaccine. Some of the things that we have heard is people are very worried and they feel as though that the vaccines have gone through a very quick process. Um, and have some concerns about the safety data. So we've been trying to be very transparent and clear that although it was an expedited process, it still went through a safety, a rigorous safety and efficacy overview. Um, And there were independent boards really reviewing the data. So I think the key will be now, how can we communicate very clearly the benefits of the vaccines, went went through the vaccine development process to really communicate to the public that they are safe and that they will be able to protect you and your loved ones from COVID. Uh, Rupali, based upon what we know now of the pending vaccines, what is the expectation within the health community about um, the ethics, I guess, how long this vaccine will last? Is it something that will be akin to a, a flu vaccine that we'll need to get on an annual basis or is, will it work somewhat differently or don't, don't we know? We don't really know. I think we will learn a lot in the next few months as these start to roll out. Hopefully here in December, healthcare workers actually in the next couple of weeks will start receiving um, the dosage of these vaccines. But I think it is a question that we don't quite know, but we will definitely be able to figure out here quite rapidly as rollout starts. It's interesting. One of the things I've learned just recently is as it goes to that uh, issue of, boy, you guys came up with this vaccine very quickly, uh, you know, in a matter of one year or less versus the seven or eight or nine years. And that's really makes me skittish. But in reality, this vaccine was built upon years and years of prior research uh, from MERS and SARS and those types of things. Do you think that should be part of the promotional campaign, if you will? I think that's absolutely right. You know, we have been very lucky to sort of stand on the shoulders of giants, if you will, right? This technology has been used in other instances. We haven't been able to use it this rapidly. Um, The pandemic sort of presented an option for a number of pharmaceutical companies to use this method and approach. And I think that is important to communicate. You know, this might be a newer technology. This might be a process of that people might say is expedited. But again, it's built on, you know, an infrastructure, I would say, that has been developed over years and years. 
So it, that's uh, you know part of the story clearly. All right, so the vaccines that's trending in the right direction. We look at the other side of the equation, the number of cases, new infections. You're at the Johns Hopkins University, one of the finest and biggest uh, healthcare facilities in the world. How do you think the U.S. hospital system is prepared for this wave uh, versus maybe some of the earlier waves? I think it's a great question. And I think that, you know, we're seeing we're going to have to see what happens, you know, after Thanksgiving. There's a bit of a lag, as you know, with regards to being able to detect new cases as well as more severe cases that might require a hospital stay. Um, I think I have heard from many colleagues of mine, particularly that live in the Midwest, that they are really at capacity, that, you know, healthcare workers are one at their limit, but their but their hospitals, their facilities that they work at are really at capacity. And so I think the goal here is, is that if we can continue to try to persuade people to, to try to stay home and we know that other holidays are coming up and people are really interested and excited to see their families but I think that if we can we've been doing a great job for you know nine-ish months now if we can just do it for a little while longer while we can get the vaccine out we'll really be able to make an impact with regards to just being able to save a lot of lives so I think that's really an important point. So Rapali, you're right down there, literally on the on the front lines here. How are your you and your colleagues uh, in the ER, in the hospital, in the medical uh, facility? How are they doing right now? I have to say I have the utmost respect and really bow down to several colleagues of mine that are working the front lines, our healthcare workers, our emergency um, firefighters, everyone from that is doing this. I I just really am amazed at their resilience. I think they are hopeful that this vaccine will roll out successfully and that people will take it. Um, but I, I've really been in awe of, I think, sort of the grit and determination of colleagues. Yeah, it's just been fantastic. And uh, for, for their benefit, if nobody else's, uh, we'd like to see the numbers uh, go the other way. They must just be absolutely fatigued beyond fatigued. Rapali uh, LeMay, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Rapali is Associate Director for Behavioral Research for the Institute for Vaccine Safety. Uh, absolutely nobody better to talk to about this vaccine. Uh, so it's great to have her on. She's at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, joining us on the phone from Falls Church, uh, Virginia. And again, uh, Bloomberg uh, School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies and this radio operation. So again, pandemic numbers, wrong way. And uh, hopefully we can get those under control soon. But on the flip side, it's a very, very promising news on the vaccine front. So keep those fingers crossed for that as it gets deployed. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Ryan Kelly joins us right now, and it's a perfect timing to chat with Ryan Kelly. He's a portfolio manager. Hennessy Funds really uh, manages the Hennessy Cornerstone Midcap. 30 fund. We've been talking about rotation from some of the real big cap growth names into small mid cap names into some names that maybe uh, have lagged from a valuation perspective. So Ryan, it's great to talk to you. Give us your thoughts here on what we are seeing in terms of what I guess folks are just kind of calling this rotation uh, trade here. What do you what do you make of it? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, Paul. Um, yes, the uh, you know throughout this year up until really the beginning of November. 
Um, the stock market was driven by just a few sectors and even fewer individual stocks. I mean, if you think of, I like to call them Mount Fang. If you think <laughs> of Microsoft, Microsoft, Tesla, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and, and uh, NVIDIA, so both of them, and sure. G for Google. Uh, it's really a mountain. I mean, those stock, if you look at the stock charts, they just go straight up. Um, and uh, that's uh, really what I think not a whole lot of people in their own portfolios, mine included, have uh, experienced that same kind of <laughs> that same kind of up. So um, it's really not reflective, I think, of what uh, people in general have seen in their own portfolios. So um, I think what we had at the beginning of November is, you know, a, capitu- a, capitu- a capitulation where value started to outdo growth. Uh, small definitely outperformed mid and outperformed large, both of them. Uh, and then sectors that got destroyed, uh, like energy and financials, they led the way yeah. uh, in, in November. So, uh, you know, we think that that type of theme can continue uh, going forward as well. I mean, there's a, certainly a, a lot of tension right now between where we are in the market, uh, how far along the vaccine is, uh, you know, where uh, and when we will get another stimulus package. And there's a lot of unknowns, and it creates a lot of tension between those different forces. But I think um, that if November is any sign of what we could see next year, uh, I think that those those trends will, will continue to swap, and we'll see value outperforming and small and mid outperforming as well. Yeah, it's kind of where I wanted to go. I mean, you know, one of the questions I'm getting now is, and what we're, we're trying to, to kind of get a handle on it, what kind of legs does this type of market have? One in which, you know, you do have this rotation from what has really been a 10-plus year run of big tech stocks. Not that they're underperforming, but just a little bit of rotation on the margin into some of these cyclical names. How long do you think this trade, if you will, works? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, one of the it's not as much a, a rotation. You're right. It's more like an elastic band being pulled one direction and then the the back end coming towards it. Uh, so you have a lot of underperforming sectors, a lot of underperforming stocks that are now catching up to uh, where the market is. Uh, you know, one particular example is um, utilities haven't really come back yet. Financials were lagging quite extensively and then they just skyrocketed in november uh and that was due to you know their 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 valuations look so compelling and uh we started to realize that you know fundamentally uh the banking system is in very good shape right now so i think that uh there's still certainly more to go i think a lot of it has to do with uh time and if it takes a lot longer for a vaccine to become effective uh, that means that, uh, you know, your your market returns are going to be more muted. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a big point here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but in the so, meantime, you know. No, good. Oh, in the, in the meantime, though, I mean, we are in an environment where interest rates are completely uh, very low. Uh, that's very good for asset prices. Uh, that's very good for um, potential P.E. expansion, which we're seeing here in the market. Uh, and until that changes, which I don't see anytime soon, and the Fed is, is telling us they're not going to do it anytime soon, I think that uh, there's still certainly more to go here. So, all right, if we do have more to go here, what are some of the, the, the names that you like here? Again, banking on what appears to be a better you know, economic outlook in, in 2021. Sure. Um, well, you know, in the Hennessy Cornerstone Midcap 30 Fund, we, we own 30 names only, so it's a high concentration high conviction funds. So 
there's not a ton of names to, to pick from, but uh, amongst those, you know, we have a lot of, I think that you get some of the stocks that have done well this year that are con- going to continue to do well next year. In the home building space, we have KB Homes and Meritage Homes. Uh, a lot of people are investing in their homes. They're spending a lot more time at home. They're there's home improvement going on, so household goods, Bed Bath & Beyond, Williams-Sonoma, Sleep Number, those are all companies that we own uh, and think that they'll do well into next year as well. Um, and interestingly, when it comes to that, to the home build, to the uh, home ownership space and home improvement, uh, there was just a really nice sizable deal where HDS, uh, HD yep. Supply, got purchased by HD. Uh, that was a stock that uh, we owned as well. Um, and uh, it just shows how much uh, value there still is in in that sector. You know, I've really been pleasantly surprised uh, as we think over this last, uh, you know, call it 10 months or so, given the the economic disruption we've all experienced, how well the housing business has been in the U.S., both new starts, existing homes, just been really, really robust. Is it just simply that we're at historically low rates? I think that's that's a major part of it. I mean, there's obviously some geographic uh, movement going on. Um, I think that people are wanting to upgrade or even uh, get out of certain areas in some instances. Uh, you know, we've we've seen certainly evidence of that. But um, you know, it's it really just it's pretty simply it comes down to rates and with mortgage rates as low as they are, it increases affordability quite nicely for homeowners. Um, and I think people are taking advantage of that, especially since they're spending so much more time at home. Anything in retail? That's a space that, uh, boy, it's been uh, really tough there. They're being saved if, you know, by the e-commerce, but that could be an interesting spot. Sure, yeah, and this is really where the value side of our investing comes in. Um, you know, we're, we have a strict valuation um, discipline where we really want something uh, trading below one and a half times price to sales uh, okay. in this fund. So. We come up with certain companies that seem a little bit counterintuitive, but, um, you know, BJ's and Big Lots, for instance. Okay. All um, right. Re- retail stores, but we think yep. that um, those. We'll keep an eye on those. Interesting. Hey, Ryan Kelly, thanks so much for joining us here. Ryan Kelly, Portfolio Manager of Hennessy Funds, joining us on the phone from Raleigh, North Carolina. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.